Well, let's turn to the Bible. Turn to God's Word and we'll dig in. So we come, in, we come to the end of a, a short series. Uh, we've just been looking at the early chapters of uh, 1 Samuel, Samuel's life. And it's been quite sobering stuff, hasn't it, on occasions? We read last time about the, the Ark of the Lord um, having been captured by the Philistines and all it did amongst, uh, amongst the Philistines. Um, it, it gave them tumours and they were plagued by rats and they kept moving it from place to place hoping that that would uh, somehow make things better. And in the end they, they sent it back. Uh, they, they hitched it to, on a cart to two uh, cows and sent them off and the cows headed straight back um, to, to Israel. So picking this up, uh, the, uh, the ark arrived at Kiriath-Jerim. And so verse 1, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all of the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they'd assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. <coughs> now Samuel was server, serving as leader, or traditionally as judge, of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered, with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, 
where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, this is all about you, the Lord, uh, who speaks and hears. And we say to you this morning, uh, we want you to speak. And we are open to hear what you have to say. Please speak through your word, by your spirit, to our hearts. In a way that we can clearly hear and clearly act on. And we ask it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. (coughs) I sent some things that people have said to me uh, in the last few weeks. That the Lord has been graciously speaking um, through his word. It's, It's a sobering little set of chapters. Um, it's kind of um, hard to hear on, on occasions. But I do get a sense that the Lord has been at work, which is lovely, and the Lord is speaking through his word, which is what we ask him to do. Seen a number of things. We've seen, we saw how there was an ungodliness right to the top of the religious hierarchy. Um, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, Eli's sons, were taking more food than was, uh, was their part, and Eli wasn't stopping them saw how determined the Lord was to provide uh, a pure priest and prophet and king. And in the birth of Samuel, little Samuel too, childless Hannah, there's a, there's a hint of another virgin birth to come of Jesus, our true prophet and priest and king. saw quite scarily that there was a time, uh, there might come a time, if you don't know the Lord, before you die, when the Lord confirms you in your decision to ignore him. That's what, that's what the Lord did to Hophni and Phinehas. They didn't know the Lord. They ignored him. And the, Lord, and the Lord then hardened their hearts. They had hardened their hearts. And the Lord says from that moment on, I'll harden your hearts. It's a scary thing to consider. But most of all, I guess we've talked about how the word of the Lord can be rare in our lives. The word of the Lord in this period of time was rare. Because the Lord wasn't speaking through the prophets. And the word of the Lord, of course, is not rare to us now because God has spoken in these last days through his son. Uh, And the word of the Lord is here in writing, but it can be functionally rare in our lives. If we don't read it, don't reflect on it, don't um, come to preaching and don't hear it. So we've talked perhaps more than anything else about how the word of the Lord can be functionally rare in our lives, and we saw what happens when the word of the Lord is rare that religious superstition creeps in. And people trust in all kinds of other things. In, in terms of Israel, they just took the ark into battle and, and had an amazing defeat. And we've seen, I guess, as well, how the Lord uh, last time has shown himself to be personal God, a personal holy God. He showed himself to Israel, to, to the Philistines, to the people of Beth Shemesh. He is a He is a personal God and he refuses to allow us to treat him in an impersonal way. So I should have told you the sermon notes are there, as per usual. I'm a little bit behind already. And the words in red there come up on the word search. So I wonder what the Lord's been saying to you. I was tempted to actually ask you, but maybe that's a bit too much. But what the Lord's been saying to you, some of you have been coming and telling me what the Lord's been saying to you. 
But the next question beyond that is when the Lord speaks, um, when the Lord corrects, what should we do? And the answer here is, is spelled out very simply. And it's one of those days where I feel like I should, I should just kind of like read the text and then walk away. Um, it, it's very clear here from the text what you should do. It's, it's here um, in verse 3. <clears throat> Samuel says this, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks. Commit yourselves to the Lord. Serve him only. Serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And then it says they assembled. Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. Four things. Things to rid yourselves of. Something to commit yourself to, fix upon. Serve him only. I'll confess. Publicly. It's really simple, isn't it? So, Israel, they were worshipping Baal and Ashtoreth. So they were the local sex gods. Baal and Ashtoreth, they were all around that area. Um, they, they were fertility gods. Um, and you worship them uh, by having ritual sex. So by having ritual sex, you encourage Baal or, or Ashtoreth to get on with the job of, of providing you really good crops this year. And Samuel is calling Israel to a difficult repentance, as one writer calls it. They're to put away the foreign gods. They're to renounce the male and female deity, deities of the prevailing fertility worship. And this writer says this, Canaanite religion exerted a powerful appeal with the sexual rites that were part of the worship. I'm sure it did. Most fun-loving Canaanites doubtless found the combination of liturgy and orgy highly congenial. Not to speak of the convenience of having chapel and brothel at one location. It's It's just a strong pull, isn't there? Can you, can you see that, that Samuel is calling them to a difficult repentance? And your first thought at this point might be, well, we, we were talking about the word of the Lord being, repair, you know, being rare in our lives, and now we're talking about sex gods. Uh, isn't that a little bit of a jump? Well, it isn't, it isn't. Because we said a couple of weeks ago, if the, if the word of God is rare in your life, if, you, if you're not having a... Uh, a you're not relating to the word of God on a regular basis, then you're not having a personal relationship with God. Which is what evangelicals pride themselves on, what evangelicals offer to people. You can have a personal relationship with God. But if you're not in the word, it's not a personal relationship. It's a superstitious relationship. And sometimes that rarity of the word um, is due to inattention. Just, well, didn't really, I didn't think about it hard enough. Um, but sometimes the word of the God is rare because deep down in your heart, you know that the personal holy God might speak to you and actually you suspect that there are things he will say that you really don't want to hear. 
So you get that. Sometimes the word of God is rare because you don't really want to hear what God might have to say. And you don't like the implications. And biblically, kind of uh, the archetypal problem is sex in the wrong place. Sex outside of marriage. So a 2014 survey, I, I did look online, I, I um, found, this was a Telegraph survey, found that over three quarters of men looked at uh, pornography at least occasionally, 76%, and 50% regularly. So there's not much reason to think that it's going to be that much different in and around churches. So I do feel impressed by the Lord to at least talk about this for a moment today. Sorry. But I want to tell you about two women. Okay, two women actually in the book of of Proverbs. And I commend to you, um, I've said said this before and I've said this to our kids, I think uh, Proverbs reads to me like um, what Solomon wanted his kids to know before they went to university. Um, only they didn't have a university. But, but he's always writing it to, to, his, to his son. Um, so we've already had this, these conversations at home. But in chapters 1 to 9, particularly chapters kind of uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9, um, Solomon presents you with, with two, uh, two women. And the first one is this. And I'm going to just read you this little bit from Proverbs 8. And he says, doesn't wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gate leading into the city. At the entrance, she cries out. To you, O people, I call out, I raise my voice. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is, what is right. So God is saying to you that his wisdom is, is, is kind of out there. His wisdom, of course, is in the scriptures, but you can learn from the way the world works that it is God's world and how to live a right in God's world. And Proverbs is a really good book for that. So there is one lady out there which is effectively God calling you to, to find out and practice his wisdom. And then he says there's another lady out there, and there are only these two women throughout those, those Proverbs. And he says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ears to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. The alternative is this. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly. She does not know it. Now then, son, my sons, listen to me. Don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honour to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. So there are two women out there. This is, okay, so this is presented to men, but I guess there's, you can turn that around for women. But there are two women out there. Uh, wisdom... Beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Um, there is folly. And the archetypal folly is sex in the wrong place. Whether physically, whether an inappropriate relationship, or mentally. And that's all I'm going to say on it. 
except this. Don't let that be a reason for you avoiding the word of God. Because in here there are a couple of other things you need to hear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. If that is you today, you are not alone. You are probably not alone in this room. That is you, you're not alone. And the second thing you should know is that God justifies the ungodly. See, I think you should all give a huge whoop at that point and say, that, that, that is fantastic news. But you just haven't got this, have you? God justifies the ungodly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you ungodly people who have thought, and I say that with great affection, um, and I am one of you, we ungodly people stand before the Lord justified only because of what Jesus has done, only on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. Hallelujah, thank you. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing truth? So if this is you today, you are, uh, you are not alone. But also, God justifies the ungodly. And in that, you're definitely not alone. In fact, every one of us in the room stands as an ungodly uh, lawbreaker um, before the Lord. And that's not just a person who's not been very nice or a person who's been ex- uh, terribly horrid. That's a person who's not loved God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. And that absolutely is all of us. And God justifies the ungodly. That's Roman. You can look that up. Romans 4, 5. So the first thing is, if you are turning to the Lord with all your heart, which I hope you are, I hope we are um, today, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods, especially the sex gods. And then commit yourselves to the Lord. It's very simple, isn't it? Fix your heart on him. Make him your number one love. Don't think I really want to say anything more about that. But it's patently obvious, isn't it? Make him your number one love. Jesus said, um, uh, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they got together, tried to test Jesus. One of them tried to test him. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment, Jesus said. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. They're all summed up in those two. Commit means to to fix yourself upon. What are you fixated upon? (laughs) Which might be, what do you look at the most? Mentally or, or, or actually, what are you fixated upon? If you're turning to the Lord with all your hearts, fixate. Fix your thoughts upon the Lord. You need to find a way to do that practically. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And we acknowledge our apostle and high priest. Or later on, Hebrews 12, uh, as let's run with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So I just, you know, I ask this question without trying to point at anybody. What, what are your eyes fixated on? What are you watching? And how does that compare with how much of the time are you fixing, fixing your eyes of your heart on Jesus?
Don't need to say anything more about that, do I? It's patently obvious, is it not? What's your heart fixed on? Serve him only. Serve him only. I didn't expect to be almost reduced to tears at this point, but serve him only. I originally, I didn't, have a, I didn't have anything written for this point. And I felt, well, I can't, you, you wouldn't kind of pay me my next month's salary if I didn't write something um, for this. But hey, what, what else am I to say? There is nothing else to say. It is just simply a question of whether you allow the Lord by his spirit to, to speak to your heart and whether you're open to do something about it. Serve. What does serve mean? Think about the three words. Him. And there's the difficult one. Only. The Lord will not, is not prepared to share the limelight. He wants to be your first interest. Not that you can have no other interest, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. All those other things will be given as well. But you serve him only. And the words serve and, and worship are kind of quite closely connected, and particularly in the New Testament. Sometimes uh, the same word will get translated uh, worship and sometimes serve. They're, they're kind of related words, and you can't, you can't really um, tear those two concepts apart. didn't really have time to go into this in any more detail. But, but if you're a believer in, in Christ, um, then you, you, what you're made for, uh, the point of your life is to worship God. But worship is not simply to stand around singing. Um, to worship is to serve. Um, and to serve is to worship. I'll tell you what, we'll come back to this at the end. But Jesus sets the example, doesn't it? Son of Man didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, or Philippians 2, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Samuel says, serve him only and he will deliver you. And, you know, we talked about whether we genuinely have a personal relationship with God, a speaking and listening relationship. Um, and, and so often we treat him as something impersonal and we think, well, the Lord will be my insurance policy if everything goes wrong. And then we, don't, and then we, we skimp on the, on the personal relationship with God in his, his word. Um, this is what Samuel says, serve him only and then he will deliver you. Why on earth would you think that the Lord is, is satisfied with, with superstitious 
um, part-time worship and then expect him to turn up at your beck and call when things go wrong. It's a very gracious God, and, and so often he does. But serve him only, and then he will deliver you. And then confess. Our God is personal and holy. It's fantastic truths. Okay, he refuses to let you treat him um, as impersonal. Yeah? We saw that if the word of God is rare, you don't have a personal relationship with him. We've said that. You have a superstitious relationship with him. The glory of Christianity is that you can enter into a personal relationship with God through Christ, by grace, through faith. In other words, you can, you can come and say, Lord, I'm wrong with you. I've not worshipped you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. And, you say, and, and the Lord says, I'll give you a gift, which is the righteousness that Christ earned in his life. And I'll take the punishment that Christ earned in his death on the cross and I'll give them to you. You just trust me for it. You don't need anyone else. You don't need a priest. You don't need an intermediary. Just Christ to enter into that relationship. But be warned. Personal does not mean private. You can enter into a personal relationship with, with, with God. You cannot enter into a private relationship with God. As soon as you enter into that kind of relationship with God, you become one of God's people. <clears throat> you don't belong to yourself anymore, the Bible says. It says that you belong to God. <coughs> Excuse me. And you belong to your local church. Just as each of us has one body with many members, Paul says to the Romans, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ... Though we, though many, form one body and each member, this is the word, belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. Nothing you do in Christ has solely personal consequences. And there is no such thing as a purely private sin. Everything you do has consequence for the body. So interestingly, for Israel, on that day they fasted and there they confessed, we've sinned against the Lord. Sometimes there's a moment, isn't there, when confession, when just confession between you and the Lord, which clears you, sometimes there's a moment, isn't there, for a corporate confession, saying together, we've, we've fallen short here and we want to. Confess that and do something about it. That's what Israel do at this point in time. And then, this is what, this is what Samuel says. No, actually, it's what they say to Samuel. When they return to the Lord, there's still this Philistine threat. And so they say to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord. When you've thrown yourself upon the mercy of God uh, and you have a personal relationship with him, there is nowhere else to go. You've thrown away your superstitions uh, and your other gods. There is only one place to go with, with, when you cry out your troubles, uh, and that's to come before the Lord. 
So when you've turned with all your, with all your heart back to the Lord, there is still a crying out to the Lord to, to be done. And, actually, and that's partly because there's nowhere else left to turn. Prayer becomes critical. So one writer says this, sometimes the Father may box us in, places in a situation where one by one all our secondary helps and supports are taken from us in order that, defenceless, we may lean on his mercy alone. More and more, God's people must walk the way of desperation. Prayer. Once we see this, we will no longer regard prayer as a pious cop-out, but as our only rational activity. So once you've turned back to the Lord, there is still a crying out to the Lord to do. There is plenty of praying still to be done. Do learn to put Philippians 4, 6 and 7 into practice. We've been talking about this in our home group. I'm not going into detail, but it says don't be anxious, but bring petition instead. Most of us prefer to stay anxious and I don't know, it's really weird, isn't it? Um, never actually get round to converting our anxieties into petitions. Uh, read it, put it into practice. Come through sacrifice. That's really important to say. In prayer, what they do is they make a sacrifice. At the heart of this chapter is, is a sacrifice. And the heart of your life and your prayer life is a sacrifice. You come to the Father through the work of the Son. Um, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got time to go into that either. Arrange to remember. Okay. Samuel erects a stone and calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Which means, and he says, that's to signify, thus far the Lord has helped us. Which is a really interesting end cap to these three chapters of Ark story. Because the original capture of the Ark started at the beginning of chapter 5 at Ebenezer. A place called Ebenezer. So it's really interesting, isn't it, that they had a disastrous defeat in a place called Ebenezer. So at some previous time, that place was called, thus far the Lord has helped us, um, and then they've blown it, and it's time for a new Ebenezer. It's time to say, we move on. And I think that's what the Christian life is like. Hopefully it is a place where when you've mucked up, there there are new victories. And sometimes it's worth trying to just have a remembrance of that. Maybe at the end of a year, look back and see how the Lord has helped you. Our key remembrance is actually the thing we do here once a month. We come to the Lord's table and remember what Christ has done for us on the cross in the Lord's Supper. But it's a normal Christian life, I think, and we see it in the, in the life of Israel. that The Lord helps us, uh, so we say, oh, I'm going to remember that, and then we forget and we move on. Um, we'll come back to the Lord and we need a new Ebenezer. But arrange to remember. Have some moments at least where you review what the Lord's done in your life. Otherwise, you forget. And then at the end we get Samuel going around his little circuit, or maybe not so little circuit. Um, So the last thing that Israel needs to do, and that he needs to do, is make sure they all come under preaching and pastoral care. And that's what we do as elders. We encourage you to be part of a home group. We encourage you to make a commitment to that, that home group. That is your first line of pastoral care. And all those that don't come under a home group come under an elder. That's not to say it works perfectly. There's always room for improvement. But this is it. It's very simple, isn't it? If you're turning back to the Lord, there are things to, there are things to be got rid of. Things to fix your mind upon. Serve him only. And then, 
the Lord gives victory. When you, when you cry out to him, when you're remembering what he's done for you, when you're coming under preaching, pastoral care, simple as that.